Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. I got my first COVID vaccine shot, so feeling pretty good about that. I hope you all are getting vaccinated so we can get this pandemic in the rearview mirror ASAP. So today's episode is called No Good Deed, and you'll see it's kind of a play on words in a, in a couple of different ways, and uh, that will become apparent as uh, we progress here. So I have talked about racism and white supremacy on this podcast a lot, and I have because I think it's really the foundational issue at work in America right now. Almost all of the political battles uh, can really be boiled down to white supremacy, right? America has been an explicitly white supremacist nation since its founding, and throughout its history it has continued to reinforce white supremacy during every generation. Of course, there's always been a counter-movement throughout the same history, which culminated in the Civil War in the 1800s, and then Reconstruction quickly thereafter, and then strongly resurfaced in the 1960s with the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. But the white supremacist power structures have survived, and they've propped up white plutocracy and brutalized black, brown, and indigenous people, as well as poor people, for the entire history of this country. The reason the present moment in U.S. history is so fraught is because for the first time, white supremacy is really being challenged across the board throughout society and is actually starting to lose significant power and likely will continue to lose significant power. So again, You know, Trump's Make America Great Again was Make America White Again. That was the subtext. That was the undercurrent. Now, of course, there are some non-white people who voted for Trump. There's, uh, you know, there's reasons for that. I'm not going to get into it in this episode. We can revisit it. But Trump's over, you know, overwhelming base was white people in America, mostly male, but not only. There's plenty of white supremacist, racist white women and of all classes and all geographies, right? So there's more of them in Alabama than in California, but there's plenty of them in California too. This is why thousands stormed the Capitol. This is why Trump still has record support um, in the GOP. White people know they're losing their status and they're angry about it. And they would rather burn this place to the ground than to share power. So now this past weekend, I had a very visceral and direct experience in relation to white supremacy that I'd like to describe, and then I'll discuss the wider implications. So I was at a family member's house in Monterey, California, and some issues related to housing policy came up, and they mentioned this deed that they were asked to sign in the early 2000s when they bought the house that was explicitly racist and that they refused to sign, and the kind of the, the realtor signed it, and, and they kind of just went on their way. 
and I asked him to bring out the deed. I'd never seen kind of these historical relics of white supremacy in the flesh. Everything's, you know, I read a lot of history, I listen to podcasts, I read articles, but I wanted to see this deed. So he brought out this deed that is still attached to his house in Monterey, California in 2021. And here's what the second paragraph of that deed says. That the premises herein described shall not be used or occupied or permitted to be used or occupied by Asiatics or Negroes, except that persons of said races may be employed as household servants. And the said grantees agree not to sell, convey, lease, or transfer said premises or any part thereof or any estate or interest therein, excepting to persons belonging to the Caucasian race. So that's as clear white supremacy as you can get. This document was written in 1947 and still in 2021 is on the property. Now, these um, these type of deeds are unconstitutional. They're no longer enforced, but they have still continued to go along with the homes, A, because of bureaucratic inertia, because many people don't read the fine print and just sign them. There's also plenty of racist people who just don't care, and they um, they sign it anyway. And uh, I let, you know, I was so floored by those words to see white supremacy in such a clear and direct way. Something, again, that was so abstract and is often so abstract, made so real, that I sent it around to my friends and colleagues and, again, decided to devote this whole episode to it. One quick point, many people got back to me saying they've seen similar deeds on other properties throughout the country that their family had or that they um, were, you know, were asked to sign. And so these are just pervasive throughout, throughout America. So after the break, I'll come back and kind of talk a little bit about more of the context of these type of, you know, housing discrimination and what it really meant. And, you know, again, what the wider implications are. Okay, so where do we go from here in terms of the implications? Let me start by saying most white people don't know about the deed that I saw, especially younger generations, nor is this stuff taught explicitly in most history classes, right? Uh, I went to some of the best schools in the country, and I never read a deed like that. You know, white supremacy was never made tangible like that for me. And again, I've gone to some of the best schools in the country. Many people want to deny that this stuff ever existed or to downplay it. You know, even again, relatively educated, progressive people just don't know the full extent of white supremacy. And I want to be clear here that this is by design, right? White supremacy is hidden specifically so that it can endure. 
right? And the reason that so much attention has been paid to housing discrimination and why deeds like this are so pernicious is because this is how most Americans amass and pass down wealth through the generations, right? Most Americans don't have huge stock portfolios. They don't have expensive jewelry and art, right? For most middle-class Americans, you know, owning a home and getting, you know, um, accruing wealth and having asset price appreciation in their home and then giving that to their, you know, their progeny through inheritance when they pass, that's how wealth is often built and passed down in America. So by denying black and, of course, in this case, Asian Americans, um, the ability to buy home equity and build home equity, they were being intentionally impoverished, right? Here's a stat for you all. Right now, in 2021, black wealth is approximately 10% of white wealth in the United States. That means blacks, on average, own one-tenth what the average white person owns. Let that sink in, right? Blacks own one-tenth. Right. And black people work as hard or as smart or as industrious as white people. But through white supremacy, they have been purposely and directly intentionally impoverished. Right. Again, this is not a product of chance. Right. This is by design. Now, let's put this deed in a greater historical context. Many black blacks who had fought in World War II helped to defeat fascism. They helped to defeat Nazism. They helped to defeat the Japanese empire that had attacked us on Pearl Harbor Day. They then returned to face pervasive racism and disenfranchise it. So think about that. You have black people who went and put their lives on the line, many of them losing them, to fight for this country, came back, and then faced deeds like the one I just read aloud where they were not allowed to buy real estate in many of the the more, you know, middle-income neighborhoods. And they were relegated to places that were less desirable and therefore more problematic in terms of amassing wealth and appreciation and uh, away from services, often with higher levels of pollution, again, you know, farther away from public transit, etc. Now, remember, The generation that most older white Americans feel the most fondly about is the 1950s, right? When, again, the Make America Great Again, all the old white people, they were thinking to their upbringing in the 1950s and early 60s when, you know, it was the kind of nuclear family and the middle class, right? This is what they were envisioning in their nostalgia fantasy, right? This was, again, a relatively prosperous era, but for white people and almost nobody else. Right? This nostalgia for the pinnacle of white supremacy is the root of the modern Republican Party. Right, They want to go back to a time where whites were on top, men in particular were on top, and everybody else was systematically disenfranchised. So once you realize the full extent of the harms perpetuated against black and brown and Native Americans, the question arises, how do we rectify this? And so I will come back after the break with some thoughts on this in The Antidote.
Okay, so for the antidote today, it will be a little extended, and I want to talk about reparations. Right? Reparations is one of the most controversial topics in America. It polls incredibly poorly because it incites white supremacists like nothing else, and it also plays on all the kind of right-wing memes about black people and, and non-white people trying to you know, get things that they might not deserve. Again, I'm not claiming that, but this is the right-wing meme. And even for, I think, relatively well-intentioned whites, it still kind of rubs them the wrong way. They go, well, you know, it wasn't me who oppressed them, and it's been so long, and, you know, how are we going to do this, right? So reparations just politically is very, very uh, tricky. Of course, also, there are many white people who are struggling. Right. There are many poor whites. Right. White supremacy has always been you know, used by rich whites to divide and conquer and, and make poor whites their allies in plundering uh, the country. But, you know, for people who are poor and who are white and, and lower income, it breeds resentment. Right. So, again, politically very tricky. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. Right. In fact, any reasonable assessment of our history shows that reparations are necessary. They are morally justified. Imagine if your family had been systematically oppressed for generations, denied wealth creation, education, opportunity, and treated savagely by the criminal industrial complex. And then all of a sudden people say, hey, that was the past. You know, we're all, you know, we're all free now. Equal opportunity. You know, sorry that I have 10 times the wealth that you do, but, you know, you'll catch up someday, Right. You probably wouldn't buy that. You'd probably want some restitution, right? I don't think you'd probably want to say it's okay to start fresh and let bygones be bygones, right? So here's the deal. Just because reparations is good policy doesn't mean it needs to be structured with an explicit racial lens. And so let me unpack this a little. Anything that helps the lower incomes groups in America generate wealth increase their salaries, such as the minimum wage, increase their social security payments, or give them health care, will disproportionately benefit black and brown Americans while also helping poor white people. So improving the social welfare system is not just good politics, but it can be thought of as part of the reparations puzzle. So many activists know this, but it's good if they do more and are more explicit about the, the social welfare state as part of a kind of racial justice movement. Now, again, you don't want to put that front and center in the messaging politically, but maybe in the message for organizing, for generating the grassroots support, right? This means that pushing for strong progressive policies is a big part of easing the racial disparities in our system and in some ways compensating groups that have been discriminated against. And the fact that it will also help poor white people is good, right? We want to bring them on board, and many of them have been disenfranchised in many ways, even though not to the same extent as black and brown people. Now, it seems like the Biden administration knows this, and this is why they're focused so much on giving aid to the lowest incomes groups. So you can get racial justice without calling it out directly by name. That's what a win-win is. And so please, my antidote for today is keep this in mind when thinking about your support for social welfare programs, even if it means raising your taxes, right? This is part of the reparations puzzle, and we owe our black and brown 
American citizens this. We have discriminated and kept them down through an intentional by design system of white oppression for centuries. We owe them. And the fact that it will also help poor white people is just icing on the cake. So with that, everybody, if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Rate it. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. And with that, everybody, have a great rest of the week. Take care.